Hello, welcome to Elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. Cody has been pretty busy with work lately, so you're just going to be hearing from me today. And I know they say this a lot, but this episode is very special. I like to think they're all special, but this is the first time that a story has really kind of reached out to us. Since mid-October, there's been a whole lot of civil unrest all over the world, but specifically in Chile, and there's a lot of reasons behind it, but they all basically boil down to massive social inequality. Chile was under a military dictatorship for 17 years, which obviously had an impact, and I have family down there. All of my cousins are half Chilean, so I'm not going to pretend like I don't have any stake in this, and I had been following the story pretty closely already, but yeah, the family connection isn't really what led me to producing this episode. I have a friend in Santiago, and as soon as all this stuff started happening, we started messaging each other, and I asked him about what was going on, and he sent me this voicemail. Last week, we fight like the whole week, like the, f the five days straight, Monday to Friday fighting. Now it's for more demands, you know what I mean? Uh, it's for health, for uh, shitty hospitals, and I don't know, education, bro, the, the transit, they didn't come today, so we have to still fight in tomorrow, and if they don't come tomorrow, we have to still fight Wednesday, and if not, the next day, the next day, the next day, until, until this fucking president that we have get out from the power, you know what I mean? And open new elections to a new president. I try to, to explain it uh, the best I can. <laughs> Today I went to, you know, fight with these fucking assholes. They shoot me three times, two times in my legs. That shit is really hard. <laughs> so, yeah, we are fighting for our lives. So, what he's talking about there is the heavily criticized response of police to protesters. Dozens of people have been killed so far, and while they've mostly been using rubber bullets, there's a lot of evidence that the Chilean police have been intentionally aiming high with the intention to blind and permanently disfigure people. There's been over 300 permanent eye injuries suffered by the protesters down there, so... My nameless friend, you are a fucking badass, and I am very proud of you. The guest for this episode is Claudio Ekdal. Claudio is a political justice activist from Chile. He grew up under the dictatorship, and as you'll soon hear, he really knows his shit. We spoke for over two and a half hours, which would probably scare some other podcasts, but... Our most listened to episode, episode four with Ryan Irving, was over two and a half hours long, so clearly our audience has the attention span for it, so I'm extremely grateful for that. During the research phase for this episode, we spoke to another Chilean named Marcos Uribe. I'm going to play a little clip from our conversation. I feel like it really grounds what we're talking about in the human reality of living under a dictatorship, so... Here's that clip. People getting 
captured by the secret police, tortured, stuff like that, and threatened of execution without trial. Was that something that happened very commonly? Oh, absolutely. It happened all over Chile. Our case, my dad's case, was just one of many. There, uh, up to this, up to, up to now, there are thousands of disappears that nobody knows where they, they are. People are still looking for them. There's a, an association in Chile, the family of the disappear, and they're still looking for it. They march every Friday in front of the presidential palace to demand answers. So it's been 46 years, pretty much, and nobody knows where those disappears are. People think most. In most cases, they threw them in, in, into the ocean, or in in open open pit mines or underground mines, and put some dynamite in there, and then blew up everything, cover everything. So it's the the military has never been able to to let us know where they are. They don't want to really. They don't want to. They burnt most of the records and purpose of what they did with the with the with the disappear with to who the people that they torture, everything, they just burned the records. We're going to play you in today with a song by one of those disappeared people. Victor Hara was a folk singer and one of the first victims of the Pinochet dictatorship. Um, right after the coup, he was captured by military police who tortured him to death over his music, which mainly focused on the struggles of the working class. And we would be remiss to do an episode on Chile without playing at least one of his songs. He's become a bit of a symbol for the struggle down in Chile. This is Manifiesto by Victor Hara. Hope you enjoy it. que se parezca 
canto es de los andamios para alcanzar las estrellas que el canto tiene sentido cuando palpiten las venas del que morirá cantando las verdades verdaderas no las lisonjas pujaces ni las famas extranjeras sino el canto de una lonja hasta el fondo de la tierra Claudio, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, and thank you very much for uh, the interest in uh, Chile and what's happening in Latin America in general. Yeah, so obviously what's happening there right now is pretty chaotic. So I figured a good place for us to start would be with some of the history. So could you describe what things were like in Chile prior to the 1970 election? Right, very interesting actually, because uh, to understand what's happening in Chile, we really need to go back to those years, uh, the years of the uh, popular unity movement in Chile uh, that uh, led to the presidency of Salvador Allende in 1970. Um, before that, Chile was very much a country governed by the oligarchs, and this is the first time that the social movements actually uh, in the late 60s uh, took force and uh, imposed a movement that uh, brought about the uh, government of President Salvador Allende and the Popular Unity Government, which brought about deep reforms. Uh, although still reforms to the capitalist system, they were very uh, important reforms, such as the nationalization of uh, the major important economic aspects of Chile, particularly extractive economy, uh, and popular social um, uh, programs such as uh, healthcare, education, uh, some food vouchers for people with low income, and things like that. But uh, most importantly, it was a government uh, with the people. One of the main uh, reforms was uh, land reform. It was the first time 
that uh, in Chile there was deep uh, agrarian land reform and that benefit the peasants people, but particularly the Mapuche people, which are the main indigenous people in, in Chile, that have always been in struggle to recover their traditional land and their the the right to make decisions of for their own uh, livelihood and destiny uh, to govern themselves although the reforms didn't go deep enough in that sense it allowed for them to have access to land and uh, to many peasants to have access to land and for the proletarian class to actually be involved in a government and uh, being participants in in a process of uh, structural change in the country unfortunately all that came to an abrupt end uh, with a capitalist-led um, military-supported uh, dictatorship uh, with uh, Augusto Pinochet in 1973. Uh, September 11 is our September 11, uh, which uh, brought about a, a horrific uh, coup d'etat uh, with planes bombarding the, uh, the presidential palace uh, where Salvador Allende resisted with uh, armed supporters, and uh, unfortunately he lost his life there and many others. And this brought about a dark age in Chile of 17 years of uh, military uh, repression and deep economic reforms that favored the oligarchs, uh, favored the uh, uh, wealthy class in Chile, as well as uh, favored multinationals as open up a new stage in uh, capitalist development that is known today as neoliberalism. Chile uh, was the experiment of neoliberal politics, and uh, to this day is the most extreme example of uh, uh, neoliberal reforms, meaning the privatization of all public sectors, the bargain selling of all uh, national industry to uh, private interests, and the privatization of most uh, social services, uh, basic services such as education, health, uh, uh, were privatized, water was privatized, uh, public utilities were privatized, uh, the public pension was privatized, and it's one of the m issues uh, current today uh, that uh, is really uh, at the uh, at the stage of the demands that the, the people in Chile are uh, are asking for is uh, a change, deep structural change, but particularly those that are are heavily impacting uh, the Chilean uh, population, the the people, the the working class in Chile that uh, have been uh, greatly impacted by these changes. So we are going to a period of time of uh, reforms. And in the 1980, Pinochet, Augusto Pinochet and uh, the oligarchs uh, imposed onto Chile a new constitution. And uh, this new constitution enshrined uh, all the neoliberal policies. So everything that it has to do with the rights of uh, businesses, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the rights of the people to access uh, basic services, is enshrined in that constitution. And uh, in order to change that constitution, there were many locks that were imposed. Uh, so you have to have 63% uh, members of parliament to vote in favor of uh, any changes for them to happen. And historically, the, the, f the political force of the right uh, combined uh, mother right and, uh, and ultra-right in Chile uh, have uh, approximately 35 to 40 percent support. So those changes have never occurred in Chile, despite mm -hmm. the fact that uh, Chile moved to a transitional period of super overseen uh, steps towards democracy in 1990, which uh, officially ended the uh, military dictatorship, and it moved towards a super overseen uh, democracy in Chile. The governments that have been in place in Chile since 1990 up to these days 
have not been able or not there has been the political willingness to make deep changes in Chile. Mm. What do you think motivated the coup to begin with? Well, as I said earlier, um, historically Chile has been governed by the oligarch class, uh, by the capitalist wealthy class, and the structural changes that the Salvador Allende's uh, popular unity government really uh, impacted them, uh, impacted their profit margin and uh, their privileges uh, as an economic class. Uh, so that combined with the global interests of um, fighting communism at that time and uh, fighting any possible uh, reforms brought about a powerful uh, uh, interference by uh, United States economic interests and political interests Basically, to uh, give an example to the world, that deep uh, structural changes to the economic system imposed by the global capitalist economy was not going to be allowed. And that is pretty much uh, Chile was set as an example of what would happen if the people, as uh, phrased by uh, Henry Kissinger in the uh, United States at that time, uh, minister in charge of international affairs, uh, uh, said that the United States was not going to allow the irresponsibility of uh, lower class to implement changes that uh, were going to disrupt the global order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we know pretty well how involved the United States was due to recorded phone calls between Nixon and Kissinger. Yeah, well, the, there has been uh, classified documents that after a certain period of time have been declassified uh, that has shown that United States financially contribute not only to um, the main political actors of the right, but also the main media in Chile was uh, the newspaper El Mercurio, uh, which is owned by one of the oligarch uh, families in Chile, by the Edwards family. And they pour uh, tons of funds uh, to that newspaper. Two million dollars, Millions, Millions of dollars in today's days would be in the uh, dozens of millions of dollars. Uh, so that um, through Al Mercurio, they would have uh, a campaign of demonizing uh, the changes of Salvador Allende to uh, portray him as a communist supporter, as a supporter of uh, Castro in Cuba. And uh, they impose fear on the population, uh, <laughs> even to the point of uh, ridiculous uh, statements such as the Russians were coming and they were going to take you, your babies away and they were going to indoctrinate them into communism, right? So that's one aspect. The other one is to finance business led um, by the trucking uh, industry in Chile, um, business led strike on uh, Chilean economy. Uh, so they stop all transportation of goods and, uh, in Chile, financed by the United States. All the um, uh, business owners and operators were paid to uh, shut down uh, their trucking businesses, transportation businesses. And also they imposed an embargo on all the um, tools, uh, all the goods that um, the industry needed, particularly uh, as uh, Allende nationalized the copper industry and the telecommunications that at that time was owned by uh, U.S. interests. So uh, it really brought down uh, the uh, ability for President Salvador Allende to uh, produce the wealth that uh, the Chilean people needed in order to uh, move forward with, with those reforms. So there was uh, chaos. Uh, if you can 
see an example of what's happening today in Venezuela is, is very similar in the sense that uh, they've not only demonized uh, the regime as, uh, as uh, totalitarian and uh, communist tendencies, but also they paralyze the industry, the owners um, <coughs> of major goods, uh, particularly uh, the basic goods such as supermarkets. They start, how you say that, when they hoard, they start hoarding uh, goods and making the people suffer by not having the basic necessities and having to line up for hours because uh, there was a scarcity of goods. And this brought about the division between the the lower proletarian working class and the middle class, and the middle class turned against uh, the uh, agenda uh, popular unity government because they were experiencing the hardships of this economic embargo. Mm-hmm. And from what I've read, as soon as Pinochet took over, the United States kind of released that chokehold on the Chilean economy, giving the illusion that things were going to be much better under this military dictatorship, when in reality, all they had done was stopped interfering with uh, much of the Chilean economy. But to to dial it back to immediately after the coup, could you describe what happened to supporters of Allende in the immediate violence and aftermath? As soon as uh, the dictatorship took over, uh, they started uh, persecuting all those that uh, they seem as uh, not only involved with the Allende government, uh, but also all those that uh, they saw as supporters of the regime and organized uh, working class. So thousands of people in the immediate aftermath of the coup d'etat were arrested. Um, Many of them were killed and disappeared. And uh, many of those that were not killed immediately were arrested, tortured. They were sent to imprisoned camps. And um, the few that were lucky enough to survive those horrific periods uh, had to flee to other countries uh, as political exiles. So they really uh, did a great uh, number on the, on the the political force that the agenda uh, process had in uh, in the organized working class. And they went after uh, union leaders. They really, um, uh, on top of passing legislation, obviously to try to uh, curtail uh, the the rights of the workers to organize. They also persecuted all those that were in uh, leadership uh, uh, positions. But uh, the common people uh, were also very heavily impacted, particularly in the popular um, uh, communities, in the popular neighborhoods, uh, the military and uh, the carabineros, the militarized police in Chile, uh, raided uh, those communities and uh, went house by house and uh, took whoever they suspected or they uh, had in in black lists as activists and those were such as the infamous situation of uh, the Chilean stadium were brought to uh, detention centers uh, uh, the Chilean stadium was uh, the most infamous one and that's where uh, Victor Jara the uh, folk singer that uh, today resonates in Chile in the hearts of most Chileans people that are mobilized in this uh, current situation um, they uh, along with many thousands of Chileans. um, They were tortured, um, many were killed, and uh, Victor Jara, as many others, were tortured and killed in that stadium and in many other uh, places of torture in Chile. Yeah. How old were you when all this was happening? 
Yeah, I was seven years old when the coup happened. And uh, obviously, with a family that wasn't really involved in left politics, uh, I was in a in a bit of a bubble at the time. I was studying in Catholic schools that uh, were very much in line with uh, and supporters of the coup. And, and I'm talking about the high hierarchies of, of the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, there were progressive elements of uh, the church as well that uh, supported and worked along with, uh, with the common people. But for the most part, uh, in my upbringing, uh, it was very much uh, uh school and, uh, and the environment were very much supporters of, of what was going on in Chile or at, at the very least out of fear um, they would not uh, raise concerns or raise their voices against what was happening. Uh, so what really um, enlightened me and brought about some uh, political awareness uh, was later on in life uh, when I was a teenager probably around uh, 14 years of age in uh, my uh, high school level, that uh, I s in in my Catholic school there were people from different uh, class backgrounds, uh, wealthy, middle class, and uh, and and poor people, and I saw the differences there, and uh, I befriended some of the people that uh, were from poor backgrounds. And uh, I had the experience of going into their homes and saw the difference because uh, I was uh, brought up in a middle upper class uh, um, community and uh, environment. And uh, I was really um, in a bubble in that sense of not seeing really what was going on until that time. And what did you see? Well, what I saw was extreme differences uh, between my um, my upbringing and uh, my situation of uh, privilege vis-a-vis uh, -vis and the struggles uh, that uh, this the uh, the more humble people were uh, undergoing in Chile, uh, living in poverty, living in fear. Uh, some of the parents of my uh, uh, my schoolmates were politically involved, although in a clandestine fashion. So in that way, I was introduced to those circles of political study that uh, were pretty much. Uh, hiding on a basement somewhere in a popular neighborhood where elders, um, people that uh, survived uh, the military coup, um, would uh, meet with younger people and uh, we would talk about politics, although, as I said, in a clandestine way because it, uh, none of that was allowed. Um, books were burned. Uh, uh, the literature from the left was... Uh, was not allowed uh, in Chile. So you really have to be careful about that. The other thing and that uh, you really had to be very careful about speaking about politics is that uh, anybody could point a finger at you, even if um, they didn't like you for any reason, a neighbor, anything. Uh, uh, at school, uh, a teacher, uh, most schools would intervene with teachers that were, s uh, the progressive teachers were dismissed and uh, teachers that uh, supported the coup uh, were uh, put in place and uh, the directors of the schools, uh, everybody that uh, was in a position of, uh, of power within the school system was pretty much appointed by, by Pin the Pinochet regime. So you really had to be careful about uh, um, who you spoke to, who you talked to about politics, because anybody could point a finger at you and next day uh, uh, secret services would come and uh, take you away pretty much. Yeah, I was in, in my research I, I came across the 
the logo of the intelligence directorate, and it's literally an iron fist. It's a, a gauntleted fist punching down. So it, that paints a pretty accurate picture of what it must have been like right. for you back then. Um, so what I'm wondering is how did it affect like art and music and the, the culture of, of Chile at that time? Because it's, it's really hard for me to imagine people going out and partying during that time, although I'm, I'm sure people were, but uh, maybe you could talk about that for a bit. Yeah, they, there's always that spirit of resistance uh, within an oppressive regime. And uh, although culture uh, suffered immensely uh, during the dictatorship, uh, most of those uh, folks that uh, um, were involved in, uh, in progressive music, in progressive theater, uh, things like that, uh, either had to go into exile or where some of them were touring uh, Europe or other countries and they were not allowed to uh, go back in the country. Uh, so for a long time there was really uh, a lack of uh, new voices uh, and uh, a new culture. Um, but uh, in those circles, as I described earlier, we would still share the music, we would share uh, literature. So slowly but surely, there's something that uh, it's always fun for me to tell people is that uh, uh, during uh, the dictatorship time, 17 years, most of those 17 years, Chile was under uh, a state of uh, exemption and uh, there was... Uh, a curfew uh, for 17 years for 17 years for most of the time there was a curfew in Chile so all you can imagine everything that is nightlife uh, um, bars uh, pubs uh, uh, theater everything was heavily impacted by that right but we did have something that uh, we call the uh, parties uh, at people's homes that were from the the initiation of the curfew uh, until the end of the curfew, <laughs> right? So you had no choice. If you go to a party, you had to uh, go there and stay until 6 in the morning at least, right? So those were fun things uh, that I remember from those years, that, uh, that spirit of defiance that uh, even though we were not allowed to go out in, in the streets and uh, have those cultural exchanges, we were able to do it in a small way uh, in homes, right? Yeah. And now, in the early 80s, you know, that uh, the military coup went on until 1989. And in the early 80s, when I was a teenager, some popular musicians uh, becoming to became to emerge in Chile. One of them, uh, that today also one of their uh, songs really resonates within this movement, was called Los Prisioneros, the Prisoners. And these were a bunch of young uh, men that uh, came from popular neighborhoods. And they, uh, uh, during that time, there was uh, the influence of uh, rock from Argentina. Uh, so the stereo is one of uh, the, the groups that really uh, set the tone for uh, some uh, Latin rock in Chile. And so they took that style, but uh, it was one of the first uh, uh, music groups that uh, had the courage to put some uh, uh, lyrics into their music that was uh, lyrics of protest, of uh, denunciation of what was going on in Chile. And they became very popular as well as other musicians. There is uh, a group that uh, was very famous in the 70s and in the 60s too that is called Los Jaivas, 
they were in ex in uh, touring in France when the coup happened, and they had to live in exile for many years. During the latest period of um, the uh, Pinochet military regime, uh, some pressure from the international pressure built up, and they kind of open up a little bit and they allow some of those uh, people to return to Chile and uh, Los Jaibas was one of the ones that returned to Chile and they had a very particular style of music that uh, was combined of uh, Andean music with rock and uh, I, I was very close to them because their uh, music teacher who actually saw them playing in the street and the music and said these people have uh, a lot of talent uh, and they took him they took them and uh, started improvising some new styles of music and they actually put lyrics to uh, Pablo Neruda's uh, poems of the Alturas de Machu Picchu the highlands of Machu Picchu a series of beautiful poems and they made it made them into music as I said combined Andean music with rock that was uh, always resonated in Chile, so it was beautiful uh, when they came back and they started playing those music, those songs as well. Other groups that uh, were also playing then, before the coup, that continues to play an, an to until today, it's a group that is called Soli Lluvia, and uh, they had some beautiful songs that uh, up to this day people sing it in the rallies, in the marches, and uh, they are very inspiring that uh, we see all those cultures from the 70s, uh, even the 60s, that uh, the new generations have taken on and uh, they have put uh, uh, rap music, uh, hip hop music, uh, and all different genres of music. Um, <coughs> but uh, recuperating, recovering those uh, traditions of uh, cultural music that is uh, pretty much uh, a way for us to express our, our dissent and our, our discontent with the the structures of, of abuse and, and privilege from the political class and the economic class in Chile and elsewhere. Yeah, we'll be sure to leave a couple links to some of those songs at our website at eastvandelsewhere.com for you to check out. One thing I'm wondering about during all this, was there any kind of insurgent movement that was fighting against the regime during that time? Right, well, the the first movement that was um, heavily defeated uh, during the early years of uh, the military coup was the MIR, and uh, the, they still try uh, during the first years of the military coup to fight back uh, uh, the they were during the uh, agenda period they were trying to push for agenda to move into deeper structural changes and um, once the coup happened they resisted in arms uh, but unfortunately they were defeated uh, and uh, then later on in the early 80s a splinter group from the communist party of chile uh, that uh, were willing to uh, organize an armed resistance uh, started to organize in different areas of Chile. Uh, that was the uh, Frente uh, Manuel Rodriguez. Uh, Manuel Rodriguez was a popular fighter during the independence of Chile from Spain, uh, so they took um, his name. Uh, so Frente Revolucionario Manuel Rodriguez. And uh, they've started to uh, organize cadres and at the same time to organize uh, um, an armed resistance. 
And to do particularly urban uh, warfare, they've um, tried to do some actions, particularly to have some funds in order for them to be able to grow uh, some assaults to banks and things like that. And uh, others, uh, such as uh, stopping trucks with goods and delivering to people that need it, uh, things like that. But uh, in uh, 1986, if I recollect correctly, um, they tried to organize an attack on the presidential caravan of Augusto Pinochet uh, to uh, encircle them during the trajectory from the presidential palace to his home in a very wealthy uh, neighborhood. And uh, they were very well organized to do that, but unfortunately that assault uh, failed. Uh, they didn't manage to kill Augusto Pinochet. And this actually was responded, and the response from the regime was uh, further terror. Uh, they went after uh, leaders of uh, the teachers' movement and other leaders uh, as a way of uh, payback, pretty much, because uh, they were n not involved in, in this uh, attempt, uh, and they were not involved in this uh, particular armed resistance. So um, it really backfired. Um, but at the same time, uh, it brought about uh, more awareness in and uh, encouraged uh, people in Chile. And during that time also, there was uh, a lot of uh, economic uh, problems with uh, with the neoliberal system that they themselves impose, uh, it wasn't working, right? So it brought about a lot of poverty and um, there was a lot of discontent. Uh, so in the mid 80s, more political organizing, uh, popular organizing started to take shape and uh, people started to uh, lose some of the fear, although still very much afraid with the repressive apparatus but they start taking onto the streets and demanding changes and uh, with the diaspora uh, around uh, Europe, uh, here in Canada, in the United States and other parts of the world, putting pressure with uh, some uh, campaigns, political campaigns, uh, campaigns of boycotting uh, Chilean products, particularly wines, and uh, a lot of those uh, intellectuals, that particularly in Europe, that uh, were into exile, they were able to um, uh, connect with uh, different groups of power, uh, political and social organizations and human rights organizations, uh, to put pressure into um, trying to bring, bring about uh, an end to the dictatorship. So 3,200 people killed or disappeared. 38,000 people tortured between 1973 and 1990. How did the media in Chile portray what was going on? Or did they just, did they ever address that? Right, and, and those numbers are the official numbers uh, that uh, came out of a process of uh, truth and reconciliation that wasn't truth and they didn't reconcile anything really. Mm. Uh, so but uh, the numbers higher. were much, much higher than that. Uh, Even those numbers are pretty, pretty yeah, high. Ab absolutely, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, so uh, the, the media in Chile was in, in total control of the regime and the political and the capitalist class. So nothing that uh, you could learn from the media outlets uh, at that time, uh, it wasn't like today, o of course, uh, there wasn't, in we didn't have internet, <laughs> of course, but uh, also uh, channels, uh, TV channels were very few. 
uh, and all managed by the political class and the newspapers the the ones that uh, some magazines that still were in circulation that uh, were from uh, the left-wing uh, political spectrum were very much uh, silenced. Uh, some of them, even in a way of protest, uh, everything that they could publish, it has to go through censorship. And some of the magazines came out with all the articles blacked out, right? So the magazine would pretty much says the title of the article, and everything else was blacked out, Redacted. right? <laughs> Redacted, like you see in the, in classified documents, for example, things like that, right? Yeah. I so bought a copy of 1984, and the title is redacted on right. the, on the front <laughs> cover, that. which I thought was quite right. clever. Right, so even pictures were censured. And uh, so I interesting, uh, as I said, the, the spirit of resistance was very much alive, and uh, there were publications that uh, you would pass on a page here and a page there from person to person. And that was the only way. Those those that are there to defy the system would have to inform themselves through clandestine channels, uh, not through the official media. Yeah. So one of the craziest things I found out researching the Pinochet era was this place, Colonial Dignidad. Have you heard right. of this before? Absolutely, yes. So from what I read, it was a government torture center run by a Baptist cult of ex-Nazi pedophiles. You which, got it right. <laughs> which really should be a whole podcast in and of itself. But uh, I was wondering if you had any insight uh, as to what went on there. Right. Um, look, I, I was born in uh, southern Chile uh, in a city that is called Puerto Varas. And it's actually near the epicenter of what you're describing. And all that area of southern Chile uh, was colonized by uh, European folks of white descent. Uh, and a large number of them Germans, and particularly um, during uh, the, the end of uh, the Second War, uh, a lot of Nazis uh, went into hiding not only in Chile, but also in Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, you name it, and the southern corn of South America. Uh, so, yeah, what you describe is exactly it. Uh, it, it was a cult that the, the Pinochet regime um, uh, provided them with land, uh, so they were pretty much an enclosed community, and uh, as a payback, the military regime said, uh, you know, you need to do this for us, and they were very glad to do it, right? So during that enclosed encampment that they had, they had a secret torture place, uh, so a lot of people that were disappeared ended up being tortured and killed and disappeared in, in that area. Uh, so it's... It's a uh, horrific uh, part of uh, the dark uh, uh, years of Chile to know that that place uh, was uh, a place that everybody knew what was going on, but everybody was uh, helpless of doing anything about it until uh, the end of the dictatorship, that place remained open as a, as a place of torture. And the I can't recall the name of the head of the cult right now. Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer, exactly. Thank you. Um, he was uh, free to go in and out uh, as he pleased and uh, everybody else on the group. Uh, and, uh, and was a convicted rapist from Germany who fled Germany in 1960 uh, for basically doing the exact same thing. He founded a Baptist ministry in Germany and... Uh, eventually got found out that he was raping children, fled, 
ended up in uh, in Chile along with a lot of other uh, ex-Hitler youth type people. Right. Um, and from what I researched, some of them ended up being, uh, you know, advisors to the Pinochet regime in terms of how best to oppress people, uh, specific torture techniques and that kind of thing. So I find it fascinating that there are people to, to this day who can know these facts and still um, defend the Pinochet regime or uh, as apologists. Even the, the current president has had some uh, sort of softer things to say about the Pinochet years, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a right. bit. Yeah. Um, so did you know anyone who has disappeared personally? I had three uh, friends from university that were disappeared. Uh, actually, one of them, uh, it was a very um, close uh, uh, situation to me. We were close friends, and uh, his uh, partner was pregnant. We were actually in a protest. I, I was a university student. Uh, I studied history and geography and, uh, to become a teacher. And uh, that uh, university, that section of the university for uh, um, um, students that are studying to become a teacher was uh, very uh, hot grounds for uh, rebellion in Chile. In my campus, we were surrounded by uh, the Navy uh, headquarters in one corner, by police station in another, um, by the uh, military in another area. And it was a steep uh, hill in Valparaiso, in what is called Playa Ancha. Uh, so it was very difficult for us to organize without being repressed. And I remember that day uh, there was uh, an ex-priest from the Catholic Church that was uh, one of the, the priests that preached the theory of liberation. He uh, was expelled from the church for his political positions, and uh, he started working politically clandestine in the popular neighborhoods and uh, in universities as well. And in that day, we welcomed him to talk to the students. <coughs> and after that, we went down from the hills to the main university in Valparaiso, that is the Catholic uh, University. Uh, he was going to talk there, too. So a bunch of our students from, from Playa Ancha went down and uh, waited for him outside of the, the Catholic University. But at the same time, we started organizing protests. And uh, as uh, the moment that we started organizing in the streets, the police was present and, and uh, they were repressing us, uh, as you see today in the news. Uh, so in what ways? In Well, with uh, water cannons, with guns, with uh, shotguns, uh, uh, detaining, arresting people, beating people, and uh, whoever they would catch, they would arrest. And... Uh, uh, some of us, uh, I was arrested twice uh, during that time and beaten up uh, both times uh, during the trajectory from in, in a police uh, uh, van to a police station. And in the police station, uh, most of us were uh, badly beaten. So in this day, uh, we ran towards the hills, and uh, I remember that the three of us held, held hands his partner, as I said, was pregnant at the time, so we were kind of falling behind the people running. And uh, we saw two hills, one very steep and the other one not so steep. And most of the people were fleeing uh, towards the not so steep hill. So we decided to go to the steepest hill. And uh, uh, slowly but surely, we see the police catching up to us. 
and we see people from the rooftops uh, yelling and saying, come on, uh, climb up, we'll help you. Um, so um, at that point, I saw the police was, uh, the carabineros and their vehicles were uh, getting very close to us. And uh, my friend said to me, you go, you go, I'll uh, stay with her. And uh, I jumped to a rooftop and uh, I climbed there with the help of other comrades and they were both detained and um, I saw them being detained. Then uh, after uh, being in hiding for a few hours in some people's basements, uh, we managed to uh, uh, get out of there and walked towards home. Uh, the next day I got to university and uh, we started uh, trying to, actually the same the same evening, uh, we started trying to organize uh, with some uh, lawyers, uh, human rights lawyers and uh, people from the church. There was uh, an organization from the church that is called the Vicaria de la Solidaridad, uh, so Solidarity Vicary that uh, they were also had lawyers and uh, human rights observers and uh, even priests that uh, were willing to try to go and try to free people that were detained in these situations. So we started uh, asking uh, where my friend was and uh, his partner. Um, his partner appeared uh, a couple of days after, and uh, but he, m he wasn't uh, uh, acknowledged as uh, being detained. And uh, after this day, we don't know what happened to him. Obviously, he was, uh, we assumed he was tortured and killed because he's one of the disappears. Yeah, one of the many. Yeah, one of the many, that's right. Was that um, one of the first inklings that you had that you had to leave? Well, uh, uh, funny that you say that because uh, we, uh, uh, as part of trying to put pressure uh, in the next couple of days, we organized in uh, in my university campus. Uh, we organized protests, and uh, we were heavily uh, repressed by police uh, with tear gas canisters breaking the, the main windows, and they were uh, throwing uh, tear gas grenades inside the building. And uh, we were surrounded by police, and uh, there was an ultimatum by the police that uh, we had to leave the university. So. At that time, there were no guarantees that uh, nobody that exited the university grounds were not going to be arrested. So we uh, tried to stay uh, put and uh, to have some negotiations take place, which happened. And uh, eventually, there were some guarantees that people that uh, left the university grounds were not going to be asked for identification because there were uh, some people that were not students and they would arrest them if they were not students. And um, some of us decided to uh, stay in the gymnasium, and that was part of uh, the, the uh, negotiation. And uh, we uh, went into a hunger strike. Uh, that hunger strike, the main demand was to uh, appear, uh, my friend that was disappeared. And uh, after four days and nights that we stay in a hunger strike, uh, we deposed the hunger strike because they were threatening with going back inside and removing us uh, forcibly. So we had to depose the, the action uh, uh, and uh, continue to try to seek through other channels to try to um, uh, find wha what actually happened to him and try to, to free him. That was our hope at that time. Yeah. How did you end up in Canada then? Right. So uh, when 
when we decided to leave the gymnasium, uh, part of uh, the uh, condition that they impose is that uh, uh, we have to show ID and uh, they put us uh, in, in a list with the name of activists. Uh, Not a so good list to be on. Yeah, and I was very involved in the student movement at the time, and uh, I was seen as somebody that uh, was a student leader, although I wasn't really a leader. Uh, I was just very uh, heavily involved and active in the movement. Uh, so after that, a uh, few months after, in a protest, I was um, caught by a tear gas canister that uh, exploded in my head, actually. I was lucky enough that it wasn't um, brunt, but uh, I was able to see the police, uh, the carabinero, pointing at me, pointing at my chest, actually. And as soon as he uh <coughs> pushed the trigger, I saw this canister uh, coming towards me, and I was able to... Uh, to dock and uh, it hit my head. So I was able to get up and uh, I was outside the grounds of the university trying to set up some blockades. And uh, I tried to run, but then a gush of blood poured into my face and I fainted. And uh, at the same time, a bunch of police officers came after me and started kicking me and uh, with the butts of their weapons, uh, kicking me and uh, hitting me and my head and my ribs and uh, eventually um, lucky enough fortunate enough there was a journalist that uh, was taking pictures and uh, uh, it took pictures of me being beaten by the police so that appeared on the newspaper and uh, with that evidence uh, we went uh, through uh, human rights lawyers to denounce the police for police brutality Disappeared in a Chilean newspaper. That's right, it did. It was actually during the time that uh, yeah, the, there was a little bit more flexibility into um, the uh, news outlets to be able to report some situations. Still very brave and of them to do so. They did, right. And uh, so with that evidence, we introduced a case of police brutality against um, the Carabineros. And that brought uh, more attention to my situation, unfortunately. So after that, there was no no tranquility on my life. Uh, there were um, plain clothes, um, intelligence agents uh, parked outside my home, uh, parked outside uh, uh, a small restaurant that uh, uh, we had as a family business that uh, I also uh, worked there. So I study and work at the same time. Uh, and uh, one day, um, walking up the hill towards my home, I was uh, taken by these plainclothes uh, agents and put into a car. I uh, was kicked and uh, put onto the floor and driven for what I would consider probably an hour. And then dumped in a popular neighborhood uh, about two hours from my place. And uh, they, they threatened me. They said that uh, if they saw me around uh, university grounds again, uh, things wouldn't be as nice as they were today with me, right? So at that point, I decided to um, stop going to university. I was talking to lawyers as well, and uh, their advice was to try to lay low for some time. Um, but the situation with the harassment from uh, the uh, intelligence agents, uh, the repressive apparatus uh, didn't stop. And uh, one day my brother was going to uh, start working in the restaurant 
uh, at the same time, uh, my father had some connections with uh, the investigative police, that is the plainclothes police in Chile, and they had some people uh, actually looking after us from the intelligence police. So um, in that evening, my brother was going to start working in the restaurant, so he was walking towards the restaurant, and he was approached by two, what I would say, uh, intelligence uh, agents. And if it wasn't because uh, the investigative police was uh, looking after him as well, uh, they would have grabbed him and uh, maybe disappeared him thinking it was me. Uh, we kind of look a little bit alike uh, during those years, not anymore. That was actually what triggered me to say it's enough. I'm putting my family in danger and uh, I'm not able to really do anything. I'm living, uh, looking after my shadow. So I started trying to figure out how to get out of the country. And uh, I was fortunate enough because my situation was very high profile that um, I had uh, letters of support, I had that uh, article in the newspaper, so I had strong evidence, and I presented myself to the Canadian Embassy, and I, uh, I was actually for a week in the Canadian Embassy um, during a process of asylum. And um, so they look at my case, and uh, they uh, already, they said, we're going to help you. Uh, we just need some um, bureaucratic process had to take place. They had to get some uh, health records uh, to be accepted in Canada. And once uh, that was uh, done, they helped me to, uh, to leave the country. They actually were so, uh, I was so um, moved by uh, the diplomatic uh, courage that they had. Uh, and they did that. Uh, Canada was one of the places that did a lot of dipl diplomatic work to try to uh, save some lives in Chile. Other countries, as Sweden and, and other countries, uh, were very helpful in that sense. So they actually even helped me with uh, the uh, the cost of flying me to Canada, uh, yeah. which eventually I repay. But, uh, I didn't have the ability at that, at that moment to cost myself a ticket, a plane ticket, so they did that, and uh, I came to Toronto in 1987. Yeah, I think that's very pertinent right now with the whole conversation around refugees and Canada's kind of official policy around refugees. Some people are quite critical of that, but I think it's important to keep in mind that most people would rather stay home. They would rather to stay in their home countries and build up those homes to be all that they could be. But usually when people are seeking that asylum, it's of a last resort. Absolutely. And uh, there's a lot of people that don't, un don't understand that uh, even though uh, some people might not be classified as political refugees and uh, people say, well, they're fleeing economic uh, situations in their country and there's no such a thing as uh, economic refugees, well... Um, those people uh, in uh, in several uh, places around the world are facing uh, facing economic hardships hardships that that you could not even imagine, and facing corrupted and oppressive uh, uh, governments thanks to the policies imposed and implemented by the global capitalist elite. So really. Canada has a role to play in that, uh, particularly in Latin America and other parts of the world. Our hands Can are not clean by, no, any, by any means. No, absolutely not, right? So the economic interests of uh, big business, particularly the extractive economy, mining in particular, and, and others, uh, Canada has a big role to play in the capitalist uh, global economic structure and how people are exploited in, in other countries. So how did the Pinochet government end? 
So with a lot of international pressure, um, particularly the Chilean diaspora and with the en encouragement uh, of uh, those movements that started to arise in the mid-80s in Chile, there was enough pressure uh, for the United States to say, well, most of the uh, military dictatorships in Latin America had already ended, uh, and Chile was the last bastion of uh, this type of regimes uh, during the 80s in Latin America, that they withdrew the support to a uh, military uh, regime and uh, uh, Pinochet. So. Pinochet was forcing to uh, opening up a little bit of uh, the um, um, allow some political parties to uh, be officially recognized as such and with them started to negotiate a way out of this. So there was a pact that uh, we call from those political actors on the, um, the hopes of the Chilean people uh, so what they did is uh, Pinochet uh, called for a plebiscite to uh, say yes or no for him to remain as the president of Chile for several more years, for eight more years, or or not, right? So the question was very clear, uh, yes or no to Augusto uh, Pinochet to continue to be the president of Chile which he was not the president <laughs> in, in any shape or form. He, he was, was never a dictator, elected. Right, he was never elected. Uh, so they negotiated this way out of the dictatorship through this plebiscite, uh, which was uh, voted against him to continue to be as a president, but uh, with the uh, commitment that, uh, first of all, he was going to, be to continue to be the uh, general in charge of the military, he was going to be a senator for life, so he would have immunity, as well as other generals and other uh, high figures uh, of the regime uh, would be senators for life. And they, uh, part of the Constitution was to, as I said uh, earlier, have some locks that uh, would really uh, be make it very difficult uh, to make real changes to the Constitution that enshrine neoliberalism within the Constitution. Um, and uh, the other factor was the electoral process in Chile. So the electoral process was called a binominal system in which the uh, right wing would have not only the senators for life that would guarantee them to have uh, over-representation, uh, but also in, uh, it would force coalitions from center-left and from center-right uh, coalitions to form in order to ensure that they would have enough representation. And anybody from the left of the center-left uh, coalition, anybody that would vote for, for example, for the Communist Party of Chile that wasn't part of that coalition uh, or other small political parties, uh, they, their vote not only would not count, but they would be transferred to the second majority, right? So uh, although the uh, center-left coalition won those elections and they won the right to form a government, um, the all the other votes that didn't go to them or to the right-wing coalition were added to the right-wing so that they would have 
uh, overrepresentation that uh, it wasn't represented by the popular vote. So this system was in place until very recently in Chile, and uh, this ensured that uh, the capitalist class uh, uh, would have control of uh, the of Congress of both houses. And uh, with that control, meaning even though they were a minority, they would have enough control to impede, to not allow any uh, structural reforms to that constitution, any deep reforms to that constitution. So that is uh, the main issue that brings us to this day, right? Um, the there were a lot of hopes, a lot of celebrations in the streets. Uh, I. I was already in, in Toronto when this happened in 89. So in 1990, uh, the uh, democracy, uh, although in a very, uh, um, very uh, limited. limited, thank you, very limited democracy, um, people had high hopes that at least the uh, repressive uh, era had ended and they were opening up a new era of democracy, although slowly building up towards uh, more genuine representation in the, in the electoral uh, uh, institutions and uh, political parties and things like that. So people uh, put all their hopes on this uh, center-left coalition for them to bring about changes. Um, but uh, as government after government of the center-left coalition that governed Chile from 1990 to 2010, 20 years inter uninterrupted, um, they were either not able to at times and, and other times not willing really because uh, uh, in two periods, sh although short periods, they did have enough numbers to bring about some structural changes to, to the Constitution, uh, perhaps out of fear from retaliation from uh, the uh, armed forces, uh, etc., to um, not allow them. Because one, one of the other locks that uh, the uh, Constitution, the Pinochet Constitution, imposed was the, that the armed forces would be the guarantors of the Constitution. So if anybody wanted to deviate from the, uh, uh, the norms imposed uh, by that Constitution, uh, the armed forces had the right to intervene, right? Which has a lot of hang-ups in Chile. It's Imagine. a very, very loaded statement. Imagine that, right? And uh, it's uh, armed forces that uh, have historically, but even more so during the dictatorship and otherwise uh, committed to defend the interests of the uh, of the capitalist class of the bourgeois class in Chile and of the interests of the multinational uh, and global capital so they were pretty much uh, also privileged uh, by uh, economic policies implemented uh, by the constitution uh, for example the uh, uh, the nationalized copper mining in Chile 10% of the profits, uh, and I'm talking about profits, of the copper mining industry in Chile would go directly uh, to the armed forces without any any questions asked. Uh, they would have uh, total autonomy to dispose of those funds yeah. and they modernize uh, the uh, armed forces to the point that uh, they're one of the most uh, modern military forces in Latin America to this day. They're also... The only them them and the police are the only ones to get government assisted pensions. That's as right. Well. That's right. If we There's talk about the, the, the privatized pension in Chile, uh, and that is uh, 
a model that uh, some other countries uh, implemented later on and then even Argentina had implemented it and Peru as well uh, they uh, realized that uh, it was a system w that was going to bring a lot of uh, instability in the future because uh, it's, uh, it's very much uh, taken from the poor to give to the rich. At the end, uh, the armed forces were exempted from uh, being part of this privatized pension plan, and they have uh, the best pensions in Chile outside of the political class, and obviously those that don't need pensions, <laughs> the, the economic class, right? So um, the pension plans in Chile uh, are as I said, privatized. Today, there are six major multinational companies, some owned by um, one of the seven families that are really own Chile. So it's, um, they take 10% of, uh, of the workers' income uh, to put into a privatized pension plan that is uh, invested in the global markets without uh, um, much uh, restrictions, uh, although there are some restrictions on investing uh, capital for the infrastructure in Chile and things like that, but for the most part managed by uh, these uh, conglomerates and uh, to the interests of the b their businesses, not to the interests of uh, making uh, or, or uh, at the end ending up a, a, a pension that uh, would sustain the livelihoods of uh, those people that retire. So today we, th we see in Chile that uh, most people uh, that are retiring under this pension plan uh, retire with uh, about 60% of the minimum income in Chile. Uh, in terms of U.S. dollars, uh, most pensioners are retiring with less than 200 uh, U.S. dollars a month to live on, some, yeah. some way less than that. Yeah. So talking about the most recent demonstrations, what what led to them? It was mainly. It sounds like a whole a whole mess of things. But what what, what specifically sparked this uh, this powder keg? Right. So interesting that we had to go back uh, to the seventies in Chile to understand what's happening today in Chile because one of the slogans. Uh, uh, in the demonstrations, the mass movements in Chile, the, the Chilean uprising, as they call it, uh, was certain measures uh, as of late uh, of uh, extreme neoliberalism policies. Uh, as I said, uh, the basic utilities in Chile have been privatized since the dictatorship, and uh, those utilities were raised, uh, uh, some of them 50%, electricity, gas, uh, water bills, uh, people... Uh, it's amazing that um, in some countries around the world uh, that have a welfare state, although neoliberal uh, politics have diminished that welfare state, uh, we see, for example, here in Canada that uh, we still have a welfare state, although it's not the same as uh, it was before the 80s. It's not as strong, and uh, we see a lot of poverty in this country because of uh, the reduction on social services. But we still see the hand of the state in the trying to deliver some services to people like health, education, uh, retirement pensions, uh, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, things like that. In Chile, all those services uh, were privatized, and there is not a right for basic services in Chile. There is a right to access services, and there is a right for the service providers to um, 
uh, have the right to deliver those services. So the Chilean uh, state is very much a subsidiary of uh, private interests, and that's enshrined in that constitution. So if uh, the private interests uh, are, uh, there are a, a sector of the economy that perhaps the private system would not function well, would not make a profit, then the Chilean system would subsidize uh, the private enterprises. Right, so education is heavily subsidized by um, the state, but it's subsidized uh, towards the hands of the service delivery private providers of, uh, of those services. So schools, um, the um, health sector in Chile is, um, although there has been reforms as of late, because of uh, the critical situation that uh, this privatization was producing, that people were not able to access uh, uh, basic services in Chile. Um, so about 80% of the Chilean population today are insured in the public sector. So there is a two-tier system of education, two-tier system of, uh, of health and others. Uh, so about 80% are uh, today in, uh, insured under the public se sector, but the public sector is totally undercapitalized. Uh, so there is uh, amazingly long waiting list to access um, specialized services, to our access uh, surgeries, needed surgeries, and um, to go to the emergency. Uh, people are waiting for hours, if not days, to be seen. So people are dying on the emergency rooms, they're dying on the streets, they're dying at their homes waiting for a procedure to take place or for a specialist to see them. Right. Similar in the education system, we have a very privileged class that have uh, very high-end education people uh, that have wealth uh, can afford that. Uh, so people that are pushed into the public sector, they see uh, very uh, uh, uncapitalized um, uh, services that provide low quality, if at all, to the people. In Chile, really, is the consumer that has to be able to put up uh, their low income uh, to be able to buy those services, mm -hmm. right? So most people, in s uh, if, they're, if they're able to, uh, they would prefer to send uh, their kids to private schools or to private universities. Uh, so people were going into debt. Uh, and uh, consumer debt in Chile is one of the highest in the world. Actually, today, one-third of the Chilean population have um, um, debts that they are not uh, able to afford to pay. Uh, so they are... Um, what you call it um, when they're sent to uh, the uh, collections. collections agencies yeah. and things like that. So, um, and most of that debt is consumer debt, so people are not making ends meet and they go into debt in supermarkets with uh, supermarket uh, credit cards to buy food, right? To buy food at 30%, uh, 35% interest rate, mm -hmm. uh, right? So, People start going into that massively, um, and also the neoliberal culture start kicking in in Chile. So although Chile was portrayed and has been portrayed until <laughs> this day uh, as uh, the most successful example of what extreme neoliberal policies the would miracle produce, of Chile the miracle, the is what I kept uh, right? encountering, the miracle of Chile, all these articles. That's about right, or uh, President Piñera called it a uh, very uh, few days before this uh, social explosion uh, uh, started uh, uh, forming in Chile, 
they call it the oasis of Latin America. So uh, it was the Jewar economy of Latin America and the world. It was the most successive uh, uh, example of uh, what these policies can do, the trickle-down effect that uh, you support the, uh, the entrepreneurship in Chile, and um, you will eventually, everybody will reap the benefits from that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the culture in Chile started becoming to be uh, really adapting and buying into the, the consumerist uh, um, uh, mode. And uh, people start going into debt to buy a car, to buy a TV, uh, and things like that. And credit was very easy to access uh, during the 90s. And um, then people had to pay back <laughs> those credits, yeah. right? So with that, uh, you had a lot of uh, discontent. You see uh, middle upper class and the wealthy elite in Chile really enjoying the benefits of this uh, economic success. There was a, a, a big reduction in poverty, uh, and nobody can argue against that. Uh, in the 80s, there was approximately... 38% of people that would fall under the poverty uh, uh, margins. And uh, in the 90s, mid-90s, there was only about 9% of people that would fall into that margin. But the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots in Chile is enormous. It's one of the most unequal countries in the world. It is perhaps the most unequal country in the world. 5% actually have uh, uh, a quarter of the wealth. Uh, the 1% has about uh, 15 to 17% of the wealth. And uh, the rest, so about 75% have to divide up <laughs> the rest, right? So uh, in Chile, when you talk about macroeconomic numbers, you talk about the average income and things like that, and uh, these figures actually didn't, uh, don't really show the reality of Chile, right? Because uh, some people have a lot of money, and most people have very little money or very little income and very little access uh, to um to the basic needs that uh, that we need to live with dignity. So that sparked a lot of discontent, particularly with the political class in Chile, uh, particularly with the political class that uh, the people have hopes that uh, they would represent their interests with the center-left coalition. And um, in 2006, uh, approximately, uh, there was the first movement of uh, young students that started organizing their discontent about their privatized uh, education system, about the lack of access to um, proper transportation and uh, to education, and uh, they started organizing. At the same time, there were other sectors of uh, the Chilean society that started to organize uh, in different regions of the country, particularly uh, in regions that we call the sacrifice regions, and the regions of the north, that is the massive e extractive mining economy, the Mapuche people that are the main indigenous people in Chile that have always been in resistance and, uh, and fighting to regain their traditional territory and their uh, right to uh, self-determination. And they also have been an inspiration for the Chilean people because they have never really stopped fighting and uh, they were heavily repressed under the dictatorship. Uh, so they continued to organize uh, to uh, try to regain land and uh, to occupy land and they continue to be heavily repressed by those regimes. Actually, the Mapuche territory that is the cent uh, part of the center south of Chile 
is being totally militarized. So there was a lot of support, uh, particularly in the younger generations for the Mapuche struggle. And the students, uh, the young students, kind of took on that courage and started organizing themselves. So by 2006, uh, you see the first uprising very well organized by the secondary students and their organizations, a federation of secondary level students. And they organized rallies, massive rallies. Uh, it was actually called the Penguin Revolution because of the uniform that uh, the students have to uh, wear in Chile that resemble a little bit like penguins. The students uh, uh, during that time, they decided through their uh, leaders and their federation to sit down on a negotiation table with uh, the government and try to get the reforms that they were asking for through negotiations. Uh, that didn't happen. So this divided uh, the, the left wing and center left uh, vote and allowed for uh, the current uh, uh, right wing government of Piñera to take, uh, to take office. So Piñera and his government um, slowly but surely started implementing deeper uh, economic reforms, uh, neoliberal economic reforms, so higher prices for basic utilities, uh, higher prices for transportation, and uh, that was the last thing that sparked the revolt by the students. Uh, particularly in the capital, Santiago, there was a hike. And one of the latest hikes was for the subway system, the, the subway transportation. And uh, it was, although a small hike, uh, it was about 30 pesos, so not, uh, not even uh, a quarter of a dollar. But um, that increase also with some other policies to repress the public sector secondary student movement that it was the most militant and most organized. Uh, Piñera implemented a, a policy that I was called in English uh, the safe school law. And that very much gave uh, carte blanche to the police, to the carabineros in Chile, um, to enter any uh, education institution in Chile, particularly uh, the public uh, secondary schools and to arrest any student that they suspected to be involved in um, violence, uh, quote-unquote, or, uh, or to have any excuse of suspicion that uh, a student was organizing towards defying the status quo of the system. So, so they can be arrested? They were uh, actually, I, I've seen videos of the, um, the uh, special forces of police entering schools and, and uh, shooting tear gas canisters in classrooms and arrested student, arresting students in classroom and dragging them down uh, towards a party wagon and uh, away you go and uh, charges of sedition and things like that to uh, young students, to 15, 16 year old students. So uh, I can't think of a worse name than safe school. Yeah, laws. imagine that. Right? Yeah. So safe for whom, right? So this really enraged uh, the secondary level students, and this uh, hike in uh, in the transportation was, I would say, I, I have my hypothesis that uh, this was done on purpose, uh, perhaps to disguise a little bit of the economic collapse that was forthcoming in Chile because of what I said earlier. The 
before these structural changes of neoliberal changes in Chile, the um, major income in Chile was particularly from destructive economy, from uh, copper mine in particular and other metals, and uh, agriculture to, to a point, uh, and exports of agricultural uh, products and uh, big uh, swaths of land uh, to um, monoculture and to the forestry industry as well, uh, all, all in uh, private hands of two or three uh, big families and conglomerates that own uh, much of the economy in Chile at the detriment of the Mapuche people particularly and other indigenous people. Uh, and, uh, you have indigenous people uh, in the north, in the desert, the Aymaras and the Dieguitas that uh, are also very heavily impacted by mining and by the privatization of water for these massive economic monopolistic ventures such as agriculture, if you see avocados, for example, in Chile, some uh, people have actually have tenure of the rights to water and uh, they irrigate their plantations uh, with the water. And the people that live in those communities, agricultural, small peasants that have lived in those communities uh, don't have access to water, right? So in the north, you have mining in the in the high Andes, uh, where the glaciers feed the water sources for small agricultural communities uh, in the desert north, one of the driest deserts in the world, um, mining ventures for gold there with, with capital from Canada, from Gold Corp, for, for example, started uh, mining in the Andes and depleting the glaciers, right? So you have all these heavily impacted communities that uh, are starting to organize resistance against these mega projects, uh, against these extractive projects and this agribusiness and forestry. Forestry that uh, it's the, the pines that grow naturally here in Canada were export, uh, imported into Chile. So the natural forest was depleted there, was cut down, and uh, these uh, massive uh, swaths of coniferas of uh, pine was planted in, in there and eucalyptus as well. So they're very rapid growth and uh, they're depleting the uh, underground uh, water sources that feed the agricultural, small agricultural business of uh, the Mapuche, particularly the indigenous people and uh, other peasants' uh, communities. And the biodiversity of what was once where those pine forests were as well. Absolutely, and you have some magnificent ancient forests in the southern part of Chile that are gone. There are very few that are standing. Uh, you have the Araucaria, the monkey puzzle uh, pine tree that is uh, original from, from that area of uh, southern Chile that uh, are very much threatened, and other ancient forests that are, have been cut down, uh, right? So... You see this heavy impact in nature and uh, in the livelihood of those communities. And uh, so all of them, in some shape or form, have organized some resistance to those projects. Uh, so when the uh, students revolted against this hike in uh, transportation costs, they uh, organized for them to go into the subway stations and to jump the turnstiles and uh, to encourage people to open the gates and to encourage people to uh, not pay the fare. Right? At the same time, there was um, burning of subway stations. 
there was burning of buildings, there was looting of uh, major uh, supermarkets and other uh, commercial uh, places, particularly um, major big stores. And the uh, president enacted a state of emergency and took uh, the military out in the streets for the first time since the end of the dictatorship. And even though they have the police and the military out in the streets, wherever this looting or burning happened, the police was nowhere to be found or the military was nowhere to be found. It's if the military was brought out, particularly in situations like that, is to ensure the, that they secure those, uh, those places that are uh, strategic for the industry, for the safety of the population and things like that. So this burning of the subway stations uh, happened without police presence. Actually, there are a lot of videos that are documenting that actually police and the military were involved in looting, uh, were setting up fires, and uh, if we're not directly involved in looting, they were allowing and promoting uh, those that are at the lower echelons of the social classes, particularly what we, what we would call the lumping proletarian, to go into these places and ransack them, and uh, they would turn a blind eye to it, right? Uh, so that's, that was particularly a tactic that failed uh, because they would have hoped that uh, there would be a public discontent and they would no longer support the movements on the streets and the protests on the streets because of this violence and this ransacking and burning, etc. Right? But on, um, on the contrary, today is not 1973. In 1973, and what uh, in the 17 years of the dictatorship, even though people claim that uh, their relatives were disappeared, were assassinated, that uh, there were false flag operations, nobody could document it. Today, everybody is a potential journalist with a camera in their uh, smartphone. And uh, so many of uh, these instances of uh, police brutality, of looting, of these irregularities that uh, have taken place during these uh, movements have been documented. There is a lot of uh, uh, video evidence of uh, police brutality, of military brutality, of uh, military and police involved into looting and burning. Um, so when people start seeing this in social media, and this really spread like a wildfire, all these uh, images, people started to understand uh, that uh, it was the time to uh, put out all those, uh, uh, the anger and frustration accumulated over uh, 46 years in Chile and to um, lose the fear as the younger generations had had no fear actually. Uh, well, they never grew up under Pinochet. Exactly. So they were stories, but... They were not traumatized like uh, my generation or, uh, or older generations with uh, the brutality of the uh, military regime. So they really sparked uh, that sense of we can do something, of let's lose the fear and let's go out and support our kids and at the same time bring out all these demands. And although very erratic, uh, the president had enacted some way of trying to pacify the movement with some reforms that are not uh, anywhere near what the people ask are asking for, uh, people realize that not only the political class, not only the right wing, but also the center left, also the uh, uh, white front, 
nobody really in the political class, in the institutions that are supposed to represent the people, have any interest in actually uh, reforming the system. They became accommodated within the system. Politicians uh, are one of the highest paid in the world, in Chile. A lot of them have, from the left and from the right, have a circle uh, door within politics and uh, big businesses. So many of them are have positions in corporations that have interest on uh, the system to remain intact. Uh, so they s they understood that they needed to bring about a powerful movement outside of parliamentary politics to make those demands and to push for those deeper demands, uh, these deeper structural changes that Chile needs today. So it's a generation of people that have been failed by traditional politics, and it sounds like it's a big confluence of, of issues, environmental, economical, educational that has led to this current situation. Um, I want to talk about some of the tactics being used by the protesters. We've seen a lot of videos of people creating these uh, sort of blockades. What do they hope to achieve in this way? Is it just about occupying the space as long and as loudly as possible? Initially, um, the students were very vibrant and happy mood, uh, kind of celebratory, uh, a carnivalistic type of uh, protest but at the same time uh, uh, impacting the regular business per se on the transportation system, particularly in the capital in Santiago. But what really changed the dynamics here is the repressive, the, the um, unimaginable uh, rep repression that uh, took place in the following days and has continued to this day in Chile by both the police and the carabineros, uh, special forces and the military. So uh, as we saw these tactics of police and military firing directly at people at, at short range, firing, trying to purposely maim people by shooting pellets at their faces. In the uh, eyes. In the eyes. So we have official numbers to this day. 26 people have been killed. Uh, five of them uh, without any doubt legally that uh, were murdered by police or military. But uh, unquestionably, these numbers are going to the evidence, the forensic evidence will continue to bring about uh, some news to Chile that a lot of the people that have been killed and more people will uh, show us as dead. There are several people that are still disappeared and accounted for. Mm -hmm. There are uh, evidence that there are places of torture. There is uh, sexual abuse, particularly to women, but also to young men. Particularly, the the brutality has been has been mostly directed to young people, um, both uh, men, women, and uh, and, uh, and the queer community as well has suffered heavily. So. The dynamic of the protest started to change from one of carnivalistic celebratory uh, mood to a more combative stand. And uh, at the beginning, it was just a student and uh, people self-organized coming out in the streets. But also you saw the image of those anarchists uh, more um, uh, from the popular classes that uh, have been marginalized from the society that uh, were the ones that have the least to lose and that uh, they were more accustomed to 
because uh, repression in Chile hasn't stopped uh, uh, during this uh, democratic term. So anytime that uh, Chileans wanted to organize, uh, they've been heavily repressed by the police and repressive apparatus in Chile. So the particularly the uh, most marginalized sectors of society and the Mapuche people um, have continued to, to uh, suffer this uh, repression from the repressive apparatus in Chile any time that they have tried to uh, demonstrate their discontent with what's happening in Chile. So uh, not only that uh, this they have been repressed, but they have also been ignored and marginalized by the Chilean society in general. And whenever protests uh, happened in Chile, there was a small but uh, strong sector uh, that uh, were more radical and uh, were the ones that would cover their face and they would fight with stones and sticks uh, against the police, particularly nearing the end of a demonstration. In Chile, the, uh, as I said, there are no rights in, in general. There are uh, no enshrined rights in the Constitution, so there is no right to um, organize labor per se. There is no right to uh, protest per se. So if you want to have a manifestation, a rally, a march in Chile, uh, you have to ask permission from the institutions. And uh, if permission is granted to you, it's very limited in the sense of, yes, you can uh, march from this street to this street, from this time to this time, and uh, it has to be peaceful. At any time that somebody throws a stone, uh, that's it. It's uh, deemed an uh, unlawful assembly and uh, disperse. Things really change. The dynamic uh, today change in regards to how uh, the general population that is manifesting in the streets because it's not the entire society, obviously, but um, for the most part, um, they have understood that these groups that were marginalized before, they have been the heroes of these protests, really. They have been able to not only to allow by them to be at the front lines and defending uh, those that are coming after them from being able to rally, to march, to open the streets, to confront the police um, and uh, keep them at bay so that people can actually march and rally and gather in the uh, squares. And um, they're defending people from police brutality and from the military repression. Uh, they're putting their bodies in the line uh, so they're actually, for the first time, we see that the people in general that are manifesting in the streets are welcoming them, and are not only welcoming them, but they're welcoming them with open arms as heroes. So if we have some heroes in this movement in Chile are the front line, uh, that are the ones that are putting their bodies and fighting with sticks and stones and um, Molotov cocktails and you name it, with whatever they can garner, but also those first aid attendants that are very much self-organized groups that have been out there and been putting themselves on the line as well because they have also been repressed and uh, providing those uh, first uh, aid emergency assistance to people that have been injured. Also, you have other heroes that are all those that are documenting what's happening in the streets. And uh, if we know what is going on in the streets is because of so many committed people that are, are self-organizing different uh, collectives of journalists, of uh, videographers, of photojournalists. So there is a very well-organized uh, support to the protests 
and part of that is this uh, frontline resistance. Yeah. yeah, there's just an overwhelming amount of footage coming out of Chile right now, so I would recommend listeners to just start looking. So not only have they been able to kind of make their voices heard in this way, the most recent news is that the government has conceded uh, at least the to the aspect of the Constitution and agreed that they will be uh, rewriting it. So what's next for the popular movement? And I think the latest is what the government and the political and economic class would have hoped with this uh, announcement. Uh, what happened, as you mentioned, is that uh, out of uh, the different uh, responses from the government, either uh, more repression or some uh, reforms uh, saying, yes, we made a mistake, we didn't realize there was so much discontent, we're going to enact some reforms. They actually tried to implement some minor reforms by um, increasing the pension to the most vulnerable uh, uh, elderly people in Chile, uh, increasing it uh, by $50 if if and when you reach the age, uh, the age of 80 years old. So you can imagine uh, the average span of life in Chile is 79, so they calculated that uh, they're not going to have to spend much money uh, if they do it that way. Um, by increasing uh, the minimum uh, income and by allowing uh, for a 40-hour uh, workday, uh, imagine those... <laughs> Those um, fights that people were fighting for as um, as uh, demands of the working class in the beginning of the 20th century are still the demands in Chile, some very basic demands, right? Uh, but uh, out of all that, any type of response that the government would put forward was responded with bewilderment, uh, with people... Something, uh, the slogan, uh, in one, one of the main slogans of this uh, mass uprising in Chile is Chile despertó, Chile has awakened. And although I don't 100% share with that slogan because there's many people that have been awakened for a long time since uh, the dictatorship and, uh, and ongoing, but those people were marginalized by the political class, by society in general. Uh, but today's society, uh, even the middle classes, uh, have awakened. And they, they see really that uh, the dictatorship never really ended in Chile. It was transformed into uh, a civic type of uh, governance, uh, civic institutions. Democracy was normalized to the sense that people would feel that uh, we live in a democracy. And there was, as we discussed, some economic successes that with cultural changes uh, were absorbed by people and people believed that uh, they were the most vibrant economy in Chile when you actually, everything, even the highways and the oceans even uh, have been privatized in Chile. So um, people understand now two main things. One that uh, this is an economic structure n no longer sustainable, that uh, many people are suffering because of it, so that a few people benefit from it. The other thing that people understand is that we can no longer live in the hands of the political class and the economic class, the fortunes of uh, and the benefit of deciding what is best for Chile. Basically, what this uh, announcement is, is a Trump, uh, and uh, people understand it as such. 
uh, and why is this a trap? Because there are conditions attached. If you have people that are already within the institutionalized power dictating and, and the uh, norms of uh, the new constitution, they will have their own conflict of interest. So the fight is far from over. So the fight is far from over. And that announcement was uh, able to quiet down a little bit of the movement in the uh, very next following days. But social media uh, start playing a big role in uh, those that are more organized and understand better the intricacies of what this proposal uh, would uh, entail. And they have been able to educate the people in general of the these issues that, are, and that I'm raising, these concerns. And slowly but surely, those that are self-organized in the streets continue to go out in the streets in mass. And at the same time, they have put into a situation of what should we do to those more center organizations that uh, are part of the social movement, but at the same time play a role within the political parties and so. They put this particular sector in a, in a peril uh, to say, where do we go here? Do we go into the demobilize uh, from the streets, get out of the streets, and uh, to channel all our energies into this process of, of uh, conventional for a, a new constitution? Or do we play both roles, which some of them are at this time? But since there has been massive uh, movements, the repression continues in Chile. Uh, on Friday, we saw in the hundreds of thousands of people mobilized in the streets, not only in Santiago de Capital, also in Valparaíso, one of the, is the main port in Chile, uh, my hometown, and it's actually where the parliament sits in Chile. There was massive rallies uh, uh, enclosing parliament in Valparaíso. Uh, massive rallies in major and smaller uh, cities and towns in Chile, organized workers. They're calling for a second mass general strike starting tomorrow, Monday, uh, November 25th, with some increasing actions, particularly from the most militant, perhaps, sector of the working class in Chile, that are the workers in the ports. Uh, so they're organizing, starting at the ports tomorrow with a general strike. Uh, moving towards on the on Tuesday and Wednesday for a two or even a three-day general national strike, so we see that this has not uh, the, that the government and the politicians and the economic class have not been successful in deterring this movement in demobilizing, but on the contrary, we see a more defiant uh, Chilean organized population that is bringing both the self-organized sectors in the street and the more organized center-left uh, groups that are under organized labor and different political parties that are willing to actually put the the governance of um, this particular presidential regime in a situation that is going to be very difficult for them to resolve other than with more police repression. So we see at the same time uh, today the announcement from uh, the president on national TV that uh, he's going to actually legislate and uh, is presenting uh, a legislation uh, within this week in uh, Congress 
and they have the majority to pass this legislation to allow for um, the military to patrol the streets in Chile without having to call a uh, an state of emergency. So the excuse is that the police resources haven't been able to quell the, <coughs> the violence in the street, as they call it, and to protect the major infrastructure and subway stations and police stations. At the same time, this legislation would call for uh, the police forces to be supported by other police forces from other countries, such as France, Spain, and England, I believe, to provide them with support for them to improve their tactics of control. So we see that the situation is really polarizing to a point that uh, it's really a guess for us to see whether the resistance on the street will be able to have the stamina to uh, continue to to absorb the impact of the repression. And at the same time, we will see whether organized labor and organized political parties that are defiant of this pact, this agreement, uh, will have the the energy and the the disposition to uh, put the government in a situation of general strike of continue to uh, build towards uh, an indefinite general strike that would be the only way that as a as a working class would have uh, the power to actually uh, force the hand on the on the government and at the same time we'll see how repressive will be the response from the government. Uh, and at this point, I would call for the international community to be alert, to to inform themselves and, uh, and to be supportive of, of the struggle in Chile because it's not only important uh, as uh, human rights and social justice issues, but it's important for the example that uh, and the precedent that is setting worldwide that uh, if people understand that um, the system that uh, has been implemented worldwide of neoliberalism is not confronted uh, in uh, in a way that uh, can actually force reforms. And we're still talking about reforms. We're not talking about an anti-capitalist revolution. We're talking about important reforms to bring dignity to uh, to the working fellows in general. This is going to be either an example that is going to spark uh, hope that, as the slogan says, that uh, the people united will never be defeated or will actually demoralize uh, the hopes of people that think that it's possible that uh, we can confront these powers to be. So it's very important. We had uh, Amnesty International. We had a delegation of uh, United Nations uh, uh, Human Rights uh, assessing the situation in Chile, there is strong evidence that uh, they cannot ignore, and uh, we're hoping that while they're dwelling into how they're going to uh, confront the situation and uh, whether they will have a strong denunciation, we have this different international pressure that is building up and that is denouncing what's happening in Chile as atrocities committed against uh, the rights of the people by the government. And hopefully this uh, will continue to grow. Uh, we'll need to have politicians, we need to have social organizations, human rights organizations, faith organizations, you name it. Uh, the um, society in general has to respond to this. 
and has to strongly condemn what is happening in Chile as what is happening uh, uh, situations that are happening in other country as you probably know that uh, in Bolivia right now there is a coup d'etat in Ecuador there's been massive movements for similar reasons for a deepening of neoliberal policies under the new regime in, in Ecuador we have the situation in Haiti uh, we have the situation in Colombia with a massive uh, general strike uh, happening yesterday actually and massive repression uh, uh, again against the Colombian population we have the situation in Brazil in Argentina you name it and we have the destabilization of Venezuela. So the whole Latin America is really in a situation that it can, depending on the response, both from the organized people in those countries, but as well from uh, international people in general, society at large, that can put pressure and then can be in solidarity with these movements that will really be relevant on the, on the outcome of these struggles uh, ongoing in Latin America and in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. To close out, what can people, ordinary people in Canada, do to support this movement? Right. So... There are different things. Uh, we are organized under a group that is called Van Number no. Four Chile. So Van as Vancouver Number no. Four Chile, and um, this group of Chileans, with the support of uh, other Latin Americans and uh, Canadians in general, we're organizing different rallies, uh, particularly on Saturdays. Uh, we've been organizing since the beginning of these uh, uprisings in Chile. Uh, rallies in solidarity, either at the art gallery, we've been to uh, the CBC to denounce the silence of the corporate media, including the CBC, uh, about what's going on in Chile and in other places in Latin America. Uh, we're also staging pickets in uh, liquor stores to organize and try to bring attention to the situation and educate the, um, the people in general of, of what's happening in Chile asking them if they could boycott uh, Chilean wines particular and uh, we're expanding into Chilean products particularly fruits and uh, vegetables uh, fruits for the most part and avocados the consumer power is very important uh, people have the choice of not purchasing Chilean products until uh, the situation of human rights uh, is normalized in Chile and people are uh, being able to move forward in a more safe and reasonable environment to uh, put forward their demands uh, but also to um, put pressure on the Canadian government to write letters to their politicians uh, to uh, organize, uh, or if they are part of a, on an organization, uh, to write letters uh, denouncing what's going on. Clearly, uh, you need to inform yourself of what's happening <laughs> before you can do that. So access uh, the information that is out there in Internet. Uh, unfortunately, you're not going to find a lot of information in corporate media, so try to uh, uh, access alternative resources in the internet. As you, Ian mentioned, there is tons of uh, material, video material in the internet that you can access to actually uh, see the violence, the uh, repression uh, happening in Chile. But at the same time, you have a lot of information in English in different uh, outlets that are informing. Uh, some, uh, for the most part, alternatives, but also uh, major media. Uh, you have The Guardian informing, you have BBC uh, uh, World informing, you have Al Jazeera, 
you have Telesur, which is uh, a news outlet that uh, is set in Latin America, but it also has an English uh, channel. You have RT, the Russian uh, news TV, you name it. Uh, you have uh, the interests of what's happening in Chile, and uh, you can access our website. So just uh, Google Van for Chile is the same with hashtag for uh, Twitter accounts. Uh, so you can be informed. But the main thing is to support uh, the struggles, not only what's happening in Chile, but uh, also pay attention to what's happening here in our, in our own country, right? So we have uh, uh, indigenous struggles to try to uh, put a stop to this uh, pipeline uh, and that's coming from the tar sands to, to our coast. Uh, we have different extractive uh, economy that are imposing risks to, to nature and to the livelihood of communities, particularly First Nations communities. You have so many issues that uh, you can rally for, that you can uh, organize, that you can come together with other people. So the fight is not only uh, in solidarity with other people out there. We need to fight locally as well, and we need to put pressure on the current government of Trudeau and uh, local governments, provincial governments, to implement the changes that uh, we need to be able to eradicate these policies that really displace uh, and marginalize people. We see in the streets of Vancouver thousands of homeless people. We see the rent increases. Uh, we see all these economic situations that are putting a lot of pressure, similar pressure that uh, uh, has been put in the Chilean population for many years. Uh, here outside of Co-op Radio, you can see sad situation of people that ha are suffering from mental health and drug addiction. So we see an epidemic of people dying on the streets here in Vancouver and in other parts. We see the actions of police. Uh, so there are so many things that uh, we can do here locally. We need to protect the land. We need to protect the waters that the fight uh, for improvements uh, to the structure of economic dominance that we have today, we need to be in solidarity um, with people that are struggling elsewhere, but also we need to be in active solidarity by uh, fighting for changes here locally as well. Yeah, Stay informed, you and thank you for doing that, Claudio. We thank appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. Yeah. <coughs> appreciate Cheers. it. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Claudio. If you did, it would be a really big help if you could leave us a nice review and drop us some stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on. That and telling your friends is the best way of helping us out in these early days, and we would really appreciate it if you did. If you want to reach out to the show, you can write us an email at eastvandaelsewhere at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at eastvandaelsewhere. You can find Cody on SoundCloud as Bitcrack, and you can find us at our home on the web, eastvandaelsewhere. Com. If you would like more information on the situation in Chile, there's a really good documentary on Netflix called Massacre at the Stadium. It mainly focuses on the life and death of Victor Hara, but is also a, a very good resource for understanding the coup d'etat and what it was like living under Pinochet. We're going to play you out today with a song by the Chilean group Sol y Lluvia. It's about the fall of Pinochet, and it's appropriately entitled Adios General. We got some exciting stuff coming up in the new year. Just bought an entire mobile podcast studio, so that's going to make it possible for us to record a lot more, hopefully, and go on location to record, which is what we're doing next week. We're going out to Vancouver Island 
to stay with this guy, Rob Wood, and his wife, Lori, who have lived off-grid for the last 30 years or something like that, talking about their experience living in the mountains. So looking forward to bringing you guys that. And yeah, Happy New Year. Hope all is well with you. Adios. Hay que cantar